of our staff is going to help me. We'll, we'll try to move uh, a little quick, more quickly through it than we did at the 845 service because I want you to get each part of it. But God began to deal with me and I, I, we had our staff retreat last weekend and, um, and I shared with the staff and the Lord dealt with all of us. Uh, and he, he was dealing with me and I was asking the question, what kind of church is God looking for? Because whether you realize it or not, we live in a society of church shoppers and hoppers. And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves trying to become the kind of church that people are looking for. But we need to be the kind of church that God is looking for. Amen? So if you will, stand with me all over the room today. We're going to be reading in the book of Revelation chapter 1 for our main text. Starting with verse 1 through verse 3, and then we'll drop down verses 9 through 11. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Remember that. He's talking about the end time. The time is near. Dropping down to verse 9. He said, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Some of us have been in the Spirit on the Lord's day right here. But he said, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he said, what you see, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And we want to preach to you for a few moments today on the subject, what kind of church is God looking for? If you will, pray with me and for me. Father, once again, we thank you for the outpouring of your spirit today. Lord, I, I, I take very seriously the word that you want to speak to your people today. So God, I'm asking you for the next few moments that, Lord, you would remove every distraction that would come against this service, everything that would hinder us from giving our full undivided attention to your word and what you are speaking to your church today. God, let us be more concerned with being the kind of church and the kind of people that you are looking for as your eyes are roaming to and fro throughout this earth. I'm asking you, God, today that through and by your anointing, through the word of God, that, Lord, you would shake us to our core, shake us to our foundation today. God, turn us upside down and let us realize and recognize, God, that the kind of church you are looking for is not the kind of church you are finding throughout this land today but God I'm asking you right here this morning that you would raise up an army that God you would raise up laborers for the end time harvest that you would give us a compassion and a concern for the lost unlike anything we've ever known that God you would stir us 
us. God, that we would be moved with compassion for this lost and dying world that is all around us. And that, God, you would use us for your glory to reach the lost, God, in this community and in this area. And we'll give you the glory, the honor, and the praise in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said... Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to move quickly through this introduction this morning. But the book of Revelation addresses seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey as we know it. And... um, Each letter, as it was proclaimed by Jesus, it's important that you remember that. Each letter was proclaimed by Jesus and it was recorded by John the Apostle. Every letter declares the triumphs and the failings of the recipient churches. And it warns every congregation uh, that, that needs to repent. And the advice that is given in these letters that were written to these churches is prophetic. It is forewarning the present day Christian communities of the snares... That can lure us away from our faith. Now, Christian scholars from the second century to date have attributed the physical writing of the book of Revelation to John the Apostle, who was, as uh, the Bible tells us, the son of Zebedee in Mark chapter 3 and verse 17. He was also the author of the gospel and the epistles of John. And although John literally wrote the book of Revelation, the book itself makes it clear that the source of these revelations that are recorded here was Jesus Christ. That's why I pointed that out to you in verse 1. Now, in the first century AD, the apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos was a Roman penal colony, if you will. It was a prison camp. That's what it was. And John was uh, he was exiled there, but the word said that he was uh, he was there for crime and the only crime that he committed you know what his crime was his crime was practicing Christianity that was his crime if we're not careful the world that we're living in would like to back you up and shut you up and there if we allow that to happen there will come a time that we could be punished for practicing Christianity in a country that was supposed to be it was founded by God are you with me this morning that was the only crime that he was committed and put in this prison camp on the island of Patmos but while he was in Patmos the word tells us that John was seized by the Holy Ghost or he was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day and as the Lord began to speak to him by his spirit John received prophetic visions from Jesus instructing him to write it down on a scroll and to send it to these seven churches at Ephesus Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea and Revelation's seven churches were among a number of early Christian communities in Asia Minor and these particular seven churches may have been chosen to receive Christ's apocalyptic message Because geographically, all of these churches were located along an established circular trade route, if you will, that brought together all of the most populated and the influential parts of the world. And once this prophetic end-time message was given and delivered to those seven churches in those seven prominent cities, then that message could spread to all the rest of the Christian communities around the world. Can I tell you today? 
day that when the people of God hear the voice of God speaking to them in his church, if we hear his word and receive his word and then we utilize our influence to spread his word, this gospel message can encircle the globe, if you will. And the Bible says once the gospel has been preached to every single creature, then the return of the Lord Jesus Christ can happen. I don't know about you, but I want to help this gospel get to circulate all around this world. But it's got to start right here in the local church. And then it's got to circulate in this community. And until the people that are around the four walls of this building are evangelized, we're not doing what God has called us to do. Do you hear me this morning? We must proclaim the gospel message. And the instruction is given to Revelation's congregations. Uh, it's, it's valuable to the church today. These churches, in these letters, it stated their deficiencies. And it can symbolize every church you can imagine in one aspect or another. And the first church I'm going to talk about and move out of the way today is the church of Ephesus. Now, the church of Ephesus was known as the church that abandoned its love for Jesus Christ and his teachings. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other the way you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. What you need to understand about Ephesus was Ephesus was the uh, prominent commercial and cultural center of Asia. And Christ's letter to the Ephesian church. That's the church that he's talking to. That's the church at Ephesus. It's what the book of Ephesians was written about. But this letter to the Ephesian church praises this congregation for their good deeds. Listen to your pastor this morning. Praises this congregation for the good things they do. Praises this congregation for their hard work and their perseverance and for their rejection of false apostles. However, despite all of their hard work and their doctrinal integrity. Christ faults this church, this community of believers for having forsaken the love they had at first. This forsaken love can mean that the Ephesians had become less devoted to Christ and that the work that they did was no longer motivated by their love for one another. And this letter to the Ephesian church, though, it does offer the, the community, the church, their hope if they repent and they rekindle their love for Christian living. Listen, I want to tell you something. They, they were no longer uh, as excited about their first love. Does anybody remember what it was like to be in love for the first time? Can I see your hands? Some of you young people think you know what it's like, but you don't know yet. But if you remember what it was like to be in love, 
and you were so excited and you had to be with that other person. You just, everything had to be so-so and you couldn't go a day without seeing them and you couldn't, you had to talk to them and all of those things because you were in love and you were excited. You know what? The same thing happens, sadly, in the church. Sometimes people get saved and temporarily, momentarily, we're excited and we're in love with Jesus and we thank Him for all the wonderful things that He's done in our life. But somewhere along the way, we begin to become complacent and we begin to lose that first love that we had for Jesus and then we lose that first love that we have for one another and I want to tell you there are churches all over this country today that what takes place on the platform and from the pulpit is not motivated by a love for Jesus Christ it's not motivated by a love for one another sadly enough a lot of times it's motivated on what makes money what makes things prosper what draws in people by the droves what can build huge beautiful glamorous buildings but I want to tell you something this morning we need to be a church that our, our everything we do is motivated for our, by our love for Jesus Christ and our love for the people around us our motives need to be what they should be according to the word of God and the lesson in the letter to the church of Ephesus teaches that truth and love go hand in hand are you with me now, Warren Wiersbe said, if you don't know who that is, Warren Wiersbe is one of the most famous commentators of our day that just died in 2019. And Wiersbe actually pastored a church in Covington, Kentucky for 10 years before going to Chicago to pastor the, the world-renowned Moody Church that was fa founded uh, by uh, D.L. Moody. And he pastored there for many years. But here's what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. Jason and I talked about this week before last. Let me say that again. Truth without love is brutality. But love without truth is hypocrisy. Listen, a church that upholds its doctrinal purity at the expense of not showing love to people is just as flawed as a church that upholds, listen to me this morning, congregational harmony and not offending anybody and not crossing anybody's path or calling out sin at the expense of truthful teachings. Are you with me this morning? Truth without love is brutal. But love without truth doesn't do, doesn't regenerate anybody. It doesn't do anything except create and generate hypocrites. It's hypocrisy when we think that everything's got to be love. We don't offend anybody. We don't preach the word of God because it might offend somebody. I want to tell you something this morning. I'm going to preach the unadulterated word of God because I love you you and I want to see you have an authentic encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ if we want to be the kind of church that God is looking for we must take a stand for truth and we must preach that truth in love sister Karen is going to come at this time Smyrna was recognized as the church that remains faithful amid persecution. Let's take a look at Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. 
Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer for ten days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Among the seven churches that these letters were addressed to, the church at Smyrna was only one of two that uh, they all received encouragement, but Smyrna and this other church did not receive a reprimand. And Christ is mindful, he says, of their suffering and their poverty and their persecution. And even though they're in poverty, they are spiritually rich. He commends them and then he warns them what's to come and tells them not to be afraid. One thing that stands out to me in this is the difference in persecution and suffering. We can suffer without being persecuted. But if we are persecuted, it's a type of suffering. Persecution is when we endure things because we are Christian. Because we have proclaimed that Jesus Christ is our Savior. It can range from anything to being uh, talked bad to, talked down to, all the way up to beatings and torment and prison and death. Persecution is sacrifice. Now, I know that sacrifice is not a nice word in today's culture. Nobody wants to talk about sacrifice because sacrifice means that we give up something. It intrudes on us. We give up something we want so that it helps somebody else or it builds the kingdom. So you can see how that is not popular. I've always said that the mark of a good leader is one who will not ask you to do anything that they themselves are not willing to do. And, of course, Jesus is the prime example of that. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his love toward us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So my question today is, do we ever sacrifice for the kingdom? Is sacrificial, sacrificial love evident in our lives? Do we, I ask all of us, me included, when was the last time we gave up our time, our talents, or here's one, our finances, and let it intrude on something we wanted. That's sacrifice, when it intrudes on something we want. But here's the good news. As Jesus told the church at Smyrna, it's not without reward. So I ask you today, are you in a trial? Are you suffering? Are you in need? Are you being persecuted? As the old gospel song says, I have good news to bring. And that's why I sing. All my joys with you I'll share. I'm going to take a trip. I'm going to shout and sing until the heavens ring when I bid this world goodbye. You see, we've got to keep that vision of what the end game is. This world is not the end of it. It's not the end all be all. We are going somewhere and I want to encourage you today, you know, we have uh, small grandbabies, and they will come up to us invariably and say, pick me up or carry me. 
it's evident we are going to have trials and tribulations in this world. And when they come, you have a loving father and a big brother, Jesus Christ, that you can run to and say, pick me up. I can't do this. And he's not going to turn us away. John 16, says, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Hebrews 13 and 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Matthew 5, 11 and 12 Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, just because we're believers doesn't mean that we will never suffer in this world. Because it's a sin-cursed world. God didn't plan it that way. But uh, we know how that story goes. But we, we're not exempt. But what I want to encourage you with this morning, it's temporary. It is so temporary compared to the permanence of eternity. If we live to be 100 years old and we had trouble and trial every single day, day in and day out, in this world, in those 100 years, do you understand that that's not even a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. So I exhort you today, if you're watching online or if you're in this room, don't quit. Don't quit. Run to Jesus and say, pick me up. <laughs> Carry me just for a little while. My mamma used to say, we're going somewhere. This world is but a dressing room. So renew your vision today. And that's definitely the kind of church, one characteristic that Jesus is looking for. Amen. Uh, my church is the Church of Peregrine, uh, the church that compromises its belief. In Revelations chapter 2, verse number 12 through 17, writes, says this, Write this letter to the angel of the Church of Pergonium. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know you live in the cities where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness and martyr among you, there in the Satan city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them... He taught them to sin by eating food offered to the idols and by committing sexual sins. In similar ways, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow some, the same teachings. Repent of your sins or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each, each one, a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one that no one understands except 
the one who receives it. The name Pergomium, I'm butchering that name again. Say it again, Lord. Pergamum. Listen, I, I've said over there and I, I've wore myself out. Pergamum <laughs> means a, a church married to the world. And I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm going to tell you, it doesn't take too long to look around to see that that's where the church is today. A lot of our churches across corporate America and the world, it seems like you can't tell the difference between the world and the church. You see, it, it, uh, Pergamum was noted for its pagan religions and heathen temples. It also, it worshipped many different types of gods like the vegetation god, the god of healing, which is still represented today whenever you see a staff with a serpent around it in our medical industries. That come from this city. And you see, you can't tell the difference between the church, like I said once before, but just like today, uh, where there's so many false doctrines, and that's because the church today is taking everybody else's opinion on what the Bible says. We want to interpret it the way that we think it should be interpreted instead of the way that God says it's supposed to be interpreted. So that's why so many people are falling away for a false doctrine. And that's what happened in the church of Pergonium, is so many people were falling away from the false doctrine that was being taught because... In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says, Don't be fooled by those such things, for bad company corrupts good character. You see, the so-called church today, we're worshiping all kinds of false doctrines and all kinds of false gods. We're having all kinds of things that are compromising our walk with God today, whether it be a sports compromise, whether it be a, a late compromise, or whether it be shopping, or maybe you just want to take a Sunday off because you know what, you worked hard all week, so you just want to lay out of church just for a little bit. You see, Jesus mentioned Satan's name twice in this verse because uh, Pergamia, Pergamum, all right, I'll, I'll say that I just need some help. The thing that it was, is this was his throne. This city was, was his throne. You see, this is where he set up everything. This is where he dwelled at. And I'm going to tell you, you don't have to go far in our local churches today because the enemy has set up church right beside us in our local churches today. You see, it doesn't offend the adversary if you come to church as long as you sit back on your pew. But I'm going to tell you something. It bothers him whenever you step out and you come up front and you start experiencing the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Whenever you experience the power of God that will fall, I'm going to tell you, that's when you start to step on the enemy's toes. You see, we've allowed the enemy to come inside of our churches and he sits right next to it. And you see, that's what was going on. Why? The devil knows that if he can get to hinder your worship, if he can get you to compromise, then he can tear down the church. You see, that was what was going on in, in, this, in, this, local, in this time. It's the local church is Satan's primary source of opposition today. You see, the church is, is supernaturally filled with the power of the Holy Ghost, with the anointing of God that will tear down the yokes of bondage. It's just that we got to walk in the power that God has for us. When was the last time that we walked in that power? Because I'm going to tell you something. The devil doesn't care if you come to church. He doesn't care if you raise your hands. He doesn't care if you sing the words off the screen. But it's whenever you get filled with the power of God that that's when it starts to shake him. You see, I believe that that's when we knock him off his tracks just a little bit. 
And I believe that Satan is persecuting the church so much, he's starting to tear down and he's starting to want to compromise each and every one of our, our, uh, our, our testimonies and things in that nature. He tempts us and he, he wants every believer because he wants us to believe that, you know what, we want everything and we want it right now. We want it right at our fingertips. We don't want to wait what's going to go on whenever we get to heaven, but we want our rewards right here. We want to, we want to grab a hold of it. It's a microwave religion. We want it our way. You see, Romans chapter 12, verse number 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. Not the perfect will of Dwight. Not the perfect will of John Mark. But the perfect will of God. When was the last time that we sat down and said, You know what, God, I really want this, but i got to have your perfect will. You see, that's the way that this church lived. They wanted it like Burger King. They wanted it their way. But that's not the way it is. You see, Christ was well aware of the works that was going on because you know what? There was a remnant that was going on. First, they, they were some people that were steadfast. They, they had a hold. You see, there may be the, uh, the enemy may be running roughshod over a lot of people in our churches today, but I'm going to tell you something. There's some people that's going to hold fast. There's some people that come to this altar because God had sent them a promise. There's some people that still get God's not fulfilled what he said he was going to do in your life because I'm going to tell you, all you got to do is stand fast because God's going to do it. You see, but I also believe that the second thing they did, they didn't deny their faith. And I'm believing that God's looking for some people that says, you know what, I'm going to stand on the word of God. I'm not going to go by what everybody else says, but I'm going to get it for myself. Because I'm going to tell you, if you don't get it for yourself, if you don't experience God for yourself, when all hell breaks loose in your life, you'll fall away just like the church did. But you know what, we got to get a hold of him. And the last thing that, that Christ recognized that antipathies, was the one that was called, he was a faithful, he was a martyr. And, and, and tempest means against all. And I'm going to tell you something, sometimes you're going to have to stand when nobody else is willing to stand with you. There's going to be sometimes you may be around the work cooler and they may be telling some jokes or they may be doing some things that you don't approve of, but you're going to have to make a stand. And I'm going to tell you, that's what God is calling the church back to. He's calling us back to quit compromising and take a stand for what God says that he's going to do. You see, and Darla, if you can get ready to come, but I believe that whenever John was writing this, that he was starting to say, because he started talking about a two-edged sword, because I believe that God wants us to get the two-edged sword back into the church today because he wants to peel away the things in our life that doesn't belong. He wants to peel away the self-pride. He wants to peel away your self-righteousness. He wants to peel away the, your, all kinds of your images that you have right now because God wants to position us. God's looking for a church that won't compromise. Amen. The church of Thyatira, the church that follows false prophets, Revelations 2, 18 through 29, writes this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like the polished bronze, I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can say your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting the woman that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat foods offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from him, her immorality. 
Therefore, I will throw her on the bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from the, their evil, her evil deeds. I will strike her child dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira. You, will not, you have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you might hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. You see, Thyatira was a small city. People didn't know about it. But it was a very busy commercial center. You see, it was one, it was the most corrupt church. But there was, the, at the same time, there were some good things going on in the church. Verse 19, it says, I know all the things that you do. So here was a church that had a love for God. It had a love for people. And as people, they had faith in the word. They had persevered. They had helped in so many ways to keep things going and, and had others to get involved. And the church began to grow. And I believe we're seeing that in this day and time. We're seeing churches, these mega churches grow and grow. And if I believe if you and I would have been there and we have visited, we would be very impressed with this church. You see, it was busy. It was active. It was doing this. It was doing that. It had wonderful people in it. And they obviously manifested the love and the concern for others that Christ had. But see, they weren't willing to disagree with anyone about their doctrinal hearsays. You see, in verse 20, Jesus said to the church, he said, you tolerate Jezebel. They were allowing sinful hearsays to come into the body of Christ. Jesus called this a Jezebel practice as their doctrine. He described it as depths of Satan. You see, Thyatira had fallen into the deep things of Satan. Notice in verse 24 that Jesus said, to the rest. Because see, there were some people in the church that weren't falling for this false doctrine. We're living in a day and time where people are falling for this false doctrine, but there still are people in the church that says, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm not going to go with that. I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to keep being who he has called me to be. You see, through though Thyatira would get an A+, this day and time they would get an A+, for all they were doing, that day and time they got an A+, but see, they flunked their exam, per se, because see, they were a church that was tolerant. We hear the word tolerant in the world that we live in today. You see, how does Thyatira and the church today go hand in hand? How do, they, how do they compare to each other? Because see, we're living in a day and time where a desire to fit in with culture. If it works, it's okay. We're living in a time where we know from the pulpit churches are accepting homosexuality as a lifestyle. It's okay. Living in sin is okay. Living in and having, 
you know, sexual immorality lifestyles is okay because that's the world we're living in. It's okay because that's, that's what we've got to do. We've got to fit in with the culture. You see, failure to rightly define sin. We're afraid to call sin for sin. We're wanting to forsake absolute truth to be relative in the time we're living in. You see, 44% of born-again adults are certain that absolute truth, moral truth exists, only 44%. And 9% of our born-again teenagers believe in absolute moral truth. That's it. You see, another thing is the fa- we're failing to take a stand for truth. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, it says, turn away. Do away with that talk, that false doctrine. Don't fall for it. See, we're afraid to lose friends of the arguments we sit and we allow hearsay to infiltrate our churches. We allow things because we don't want to, to upset anybody. We don't want to offend anybody. But what God is looking for is a church that will stand up for truth when we stand out compared to the culture that we're living in. Today we're asking, what kind of church is God looking for? I'm going to be discussing the church of Sardis, the church that is spiritually dead. This is in Revelations chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who is the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. When I read this uh, passage of Scripture, the thing that really jumped out at me was that second part in uh, the in verse one, and it said, "I know all the things you do, that you have a reputation for being alive." Now I don't know about you all, but in other words, that says you look alive to those around you. From the outside, you look like you are alive, and that you're doing what you should be doing, right? But then he follows it up with, but you are dead. Would anybody agree with me this morning that we live in a world where sometimes the church looks alive? We've got thriving programs. We've got lots of activities. You can see church people out in the community, and it looks like they're alive. But here's my question. Are they alive by God's standards? Are they really alive? So then anyone with ears to hear, oh, sorry, that, but they are they really living? Are they alive? The word life is mentioned 450 times in the King James Version of the Bible. 450 times. Would you say that's important? It's important to God. According to the Bible in John 17, 3, the meaning of life is to know Jesus Christ, right? That is the concept of salvation and to have a relationship with him. 
in John 17, 3, it says, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the, uh, the one who sent to earth. This is receiving salvation and having a relationship with Christ, both. Over and over and over and over in Scripture, it talks about the power of life that God gives us through Jesus and through his power. Acts 17, 25 says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. John 14, 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 10 says, the, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If God is a God of life and life abundantly, which is what the scripture has just told us, would it even make sense for him to live or dwell among dead things? Even if they look alive, even if it might seem to the world around them, around us that we are alive, God knows our heart. Will he dwell in a heart that is dead? No. And this, what I'm going to say may seem a little harsh to our culturally tolerant ears, as Darla mentioned. But the reality is, in a game, those of you who like sports or, or may be a little competitive, in anything in life, if you aren't winning, what are you doing? You're losing. Technically and factually, it don't sound fun, but you're losing. And so when you think about it like that, my question to you is this. If we are not living, truly, really living God's abundant life, not, not a reputation, not something that just looks good, not something that just feels good when it's easy, but a real abundant life, if we're not living that, what are we doing? What does that mean? We're dying. It's a dying church. That's not what God is looking for. What kind of church is God looking for? A church that is alive. A church that is awake and ready to take as many people as possible to heaven in his name. God is looking for a church that lives with expectancy and fervor for the things of God and his life-giving power. Not dead, not spiritually asleep. Can you be saved but still be spiritually asleep? every day. People come into the church house like that every day. Just because you walk into the garage, does it make you a car? No, it does not. You can try to look the part, but God will see your heart. He will see the church's heart. And without life and life abundantly, there cannot be true God-inspired word. God can't live where there is death. He cannot. We've got to be alive. We've got to be awake. And we've got to be thriving in the spirit. Life is not an accident. There is purpose and meaning to every one of our lives. To my life, to your life, to Pastor Sean's life, to the lives of those around us in the community. There is purpose and there is meaning. And God can't speak to that purpose or that meaning to a dead body. He cannot. So what kind of church is God looking for? God is looking for for a church that is alive. Next, this is the message to the church in Philadelphia. Revelations 3, 7 through 13. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. 
This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I've opened a door for you that no one can close. You may have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. We're talking about the Church of Philadelphia, and I was telling Angie, I'm glad I have one that I can pronounce. I can't pronounce the others. So, but the Church of Philadelphia, the church that patiently endured despite weakness. We all have weaknesses. It's, it's, it's inevitable. We all do. And Philadelphia was home to a synagogue community that was hostile to Christians. But Christ praises them for remaining faithful in the face of trials and tribulations despite their limited strength. You know, this letter starts out telling us that whatever door is opened cannot be closed, and whatever door is closed cannot be opened. And I began to think about that, and I was studying and going over some things. I looked it up, and I don't do this often, but in the Greek, the term open door is actually translated to a door having been opened. And, you know, when you think about that, there's so many times in our lives that we walk right up to doors that are wide open, and we walk right by them. So many times we walk up to doors that are closed and we beg to get in. And we choose that because, you know, it's convenient or it looks better. That side looks a little bit better than this side does. That side has this program. This side doesn't. But we do that and we live in a society where we're constantly on the go. I mean, we're all busy people, every single one of us. And, you know, we're guilty of, you know, getting out of the bed, just going among a routine getting out of bed, going to work, getting home, feeding the kids, brushing your teeth, I hope you brush your teeth, getting every, everybody ready. But then we stop and we sit there and think, did I miss any doors today? Was there an open door right in front of my face and I walked right by it? That open door could have been your coworker. They're going through a rough time in their life and they need you just to be Jesus to them. It could be that your best friend is really struggling and you just go by your everyday life and pretend like they don't exist. It could be that waitress that was at your restaurant. They really need you to just be the light of Jesus. Just act like Jesus. But, you know, life can get exhausting. And we walk by all these doors of opportunities. And we miss the opportunity to share Jesus to these people. We miss the opportunity to not just cram Jesus down their throat, but to act like the church. And when Jesus opened a door, no one can close that. You know, the letter goes on, and Jesus doesn't really reproach this congregation, but condemns its persecutors. And how many knows that we have persecutors? And Christ promises that the Philadelphian congregants remain faithful to him, and so he will protect them with the hour of trial and make them pillars 
in God's heavenly temple. When you look up the word pillar in the uh, dictionary, it's a firm, upright support for superstructure. So you could say that it's important. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign that you push through in the hard times, despite all the tribulation, all the hardships you're going through. And summing up this whole letter, here's what it really comes down to. When life gets tough, hold on. When things are thrown your way that you have no control over, stay faithful. When you feel like you're just crumbling down because you can't take no more, stay strong. And when it seems like more than you can handle is coming at you and spears are going right towards your face, hold on, stay faithful, and stay apart. Pray, worship, dive into his word. And if we do that, he promises that we will stand as strong as pillars in heaven. Isn't that good? Even though we have weaknesses and we all have limited strengths, he still promises blessings to us and ultimately promises eternal life to us that we get after that. I had this in my notes even before Karen shared it. In my heritage, they had a saying, uh, this is just a dressing room. And so, so many times we get caught up in all the material things of life and the busyness of life and the sports and all these activities, and those can be good things. But at the end of the day, does it build the kingdom? Are we so overwhelmed about that in our life that we forget what our mission is? We're called to go and make disciples. We're called to get as many people as we can, take them to heaven with us, tell them about the good news of Jesus. Don't miss it. Don't miss the mark. The seventh and final church we're going to look at today, the church of Laodicea, which was a church of lukewarm faith. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched. And miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me. So you will not be shamed by your nakedness. And ointment for your eyes. So you'll be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. The church of Laodicea was a church with a lukewarm faith. Now Laodicea, very briefly, I want you to understand, was a prosperous industrial commercial hub, if you will. And Jesus' letter to this church doesn't waste any time getting to the root of the problem with the congregation for its lukewarm faith, actually threatening to spit or spew, as the King James Version says, that entire congregation, that entire church, out of the mouth of God. And Christ scolds this church for allowing its economic prosperity to cause um, uh, its spiritual bankruptcy. And it reveals that despite its economic wealth, only God 
can provide spiritual wealth. And those in the Laodicean church who open the door to Christ will share uh, in all of the blessings of God with him. And they'll have the right to sit with him, as the writer said, on the throne. But like the church in Laodicea, listen to me this morning. And Nicholas, you can go ahead and come to the music, please. Like the church in Laodicea, it's easy to become complacent in our faith during times of abundance. I said it's easy for the church to become complacent in times of abundance. You take, for example, uh, September the 11th. Uh, when the, the World Trade Centers were attacked uh, all of those 20 years ago or 21 years ago. You take for that for example. And at that time, um, you take for example, at that time, prior to that, churches were empty. Virtually empty all over the country. But after that attack happened, and we realized what a shape we were in, the churches all across this country opened their doors, and they began to fill up. People came in until every seat was full in many of them. till the altars were full in many of them. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because the church got complacent in our times of abundance and in our time of security. But when everything was ripped out underneath us and we did not know what was going to happen from one minute to the next, where did we turn to? We turned to God. You know what that tells me? That tells me it was a bunch of believers who had a lukewarm faith. This may not be a popular message to preach to you this morning, but I'm afraid in the church today, look around. We could fill every seat in this building if the people that called Freedom Point Church home were here today. Now, I know there's some folk that are sick, but I also know there's some folk that are doing other things that hung out too late last night listen you're talking to somebody who came home at 2 a.m. this morning from a death and got in the bed and crawled out this morning and was here for an 845 service I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back I'm saying that because when I got up this morning I said God you know what I went through last night and you know how short of sleep I am but I know you've got a word for your people my faith this morning is not lukewarm God wants a church that is hot with the fervor of the fire of his spirit that's what God is looking for Jesus himself even told us listen you cannot serve two masters you can't do it he said nobody can serve two masters you'll either hate one and love the other you'll be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve God and be enslaved to your money I want to tell you this morning and I don't look at tithes, and I'm glad I don't. I don't look at detailed giving records so I can say what I want to say to you when I want to say it. And here's what I want to say. You may think you're blessed, and you may be selfish and holding back from sowing into the kingdom. But I, you know what I have to say to you this morning? You better check yourself. That's called lukewarmness. I said, boy, I ain't getting a lot of help this morning. Karen, don't even give me the report. I don't even know what the giving is today. I said, if you don't sow into the kingdom and you call yourself a Christian, you better check yourself. You're lukewarm. Because you let everything else be ripped out from under you. You let bombs be going off if we get under attack. Listen, I look at the news sometimes and have to shut it off because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I can tell you, if we end up under attack, the churches will fill up once again. You'll be glad there's a building of God to worship in. 
You'll be glad there's a house of God to pray in. I want to tell you something, church. It's time that we move away from our complacency and we don't forget the God that blessed us with that job that we've got. It's one thing if you have to work a shift and you can't be at church. That's one thing. But it's another thing if you're so dedicated to your job, you can't give any time or service to the kingdom of God. I'm telling you this morning, just like it was a warning in the book of Revelation, I'm warning you today, you better check yourself that you do not become complacent because God is looking for a church that is burning hot with the fire of God. Stand with me all over the room today. What kind of church is God looking for? He's looking for a church that truly loves God and His Word. A church that remains faithful. A church that won't compromise. A church that knows the Word and does not follow false prophets or false teachings. A church that is spiritually alive. A church that patiently endures despite its weakness. And a church that refuses to be complacent and lukewarm. You know what John Wesley said? John Wesley said, catch on fire and folks will come from miles to watch you burn that's what he said we used to sing a song in the old church years ago said I wish somebody's soul would catch on fire burning with the Holy Ghost you know what my prayer is today I wish this church would catch on fire every single one of us in it burning with the Holy Ghost somebody else once said a church alive is worth the drive Listen, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. I don't know about you, but my greatest heart's desire this morning is for him to draw all men unto himself. He may be drawing you today. We're going to open this altar this morning as they sing, I don't know about you, but I want to be the kind of church that God is looking for. I said, I want to be the kind of church that God is looking for. If you want to be part of that church, I invite you to join us this morning in an altar.